Hello, everyone. Before we begin this week's story, I have a very exciting announcement to make. Starting today, we are inviting you, our beloved listeners, to become a part of the Ghost Family Inner Circle by supporting our show on Patreon. We are calling this program Kindred Spirits. Hat tip to producer Jenna Hannum for coming up with that excellent name. And for just $5 a month, Patreon supporters are going to get a bunch of cool exclusives, including access to a private show feed with ad-free versions of all of our stories, old and new, plus early access to season three episodes, bonus interviews with some of your favorite characters from our stories, as well as conversations with artists who do work that explores the same themes as our show. You'll also get ticket discounts for Family Ghosts live shows. And for the first 100 Kindred Spirits subscribers, we've got a limited edition Family Ghosts t-shirt. Many of you have been with us from the beginning, and you know that this show has always counted on our listeners to keep going. And while there's definitely going to be a third season, your support will help us make it the best season yet. So please consider signing up at patreon.com slash familyghosts. That's patreon.com slash familyghosts. And thank you, as always, for your support of our work. And with that, let's begin. Spoke Media. Hello, Ghost Family. Welcome to Family Ghosts. As you may recall, when we released our trailer several weeks ago, this was the first thing you heard. Hello. I am here because I want to say something. I wanted to use that clip to kick off our season, because as you may have noticed, many of our stories so far have been about voices from the past and the messages they're trying to send us about who we are and where we come from. Sometimes it's not so clear where to find these messages. They're often lurking in unexpected corners of our family histories. But every once in a while, we get a message from ourselves. The voice on that tape is Kyria Traber, and Kyria has been making up songs and stories and recording them ever since she was a little kid. She still does it to this day. It's a way of processing what she's feeling when something is confusing or overwhelming or mysterious. When I first met Kyria, she'd recently found this tape of herself, and she told me it reminded her of how much time she spent alone when she was growing up. The front bay windows of our tracked uh, home looked out on cypress trees. And if you've ever never seen a cypress tree, it is the ugliest tree. It looks like a Q-tip. It has no low branches. You can't climb it. It's just scraggly at the top and this, like, dusty green. Sitting at the bay windows of this tracked home where the floor was moldy, and there was termites in the walls, and the plumbing didn't work all the time, and we didn't have any money for me to buy new clothes. Everybody teased me, and I couldn't go anywhere because there was nowhere to go, and we were on a logging road, and I couldn't walk there by myself because the trucks might hit me, so I'm just sitting there staring out at these trees, and they don't do anything. They don't change. During this time, Kyria's mom worked at a bakery, 
And sometimes, Kiria would go visit her while she was on shift. I would walk down the hill a mile and go to the bakery and sit and just strike up conversation with everybody. And she would slip me little notes. I was like, take a chill pill, Kiria. Because <laughs> I'd be telling our entire life story to anybody who's listening. When Kiria told me this, I felt a resonance with her experience. Because when we're little kids, we believe so completely that our stories matter. We want to tell them to everyone who's willing to listen. But growing up, Kiria didn't feel like she was connected to her own story. And that's partially because she could tell there was part of it she didn't know. I was raised by my mother and um, my aunt and um, my grandmother. So a lot of women influences in my life. It was a very women-centric, very feminist household and upbringing. And then there was these elusive men. Kiria's dad wasn't in the picture, but the two men that felt most elusive were her grandfathers. They are two of the mysteries that Kiria likes to write songs about. On one side, there was her dad's father, a black man from Alabama named Benjamin Johnson. Ben Johnson would come by on the weekends to wash off his nights and endless days He hardly said much or stayed for very long Mama said he made his home just where he lay Mama said he made his home just where he lay As an adult, Benjamin lived on the streets of Berkeley, California. Kiria remembers him as a ghostly presence in her family's house. He'd show up periodically to take a bath and then vanish back into the streets, where the rumor was he enjoyed a local reputation as a kind of street corner savant. People would approach him with offerings, usually booze, and then sit with him for a while to talk politics and philosophy. But at Kiria's house, there wasn't any of that, just those fleeting visits and not much talking at all. On her mom's side, Kiria had another grandfather, a white man, Swiss-German, named Gus, or Pampaw, as Kiria called him. She's got a song about him, too. August was his name, known as Pampaw to me. My grandpa, that old traveling man, across the land, over the sea, always far away from me. My mama said one day he'd be home. His letters, they always told her so. Pampa was a storyteller. And when Kiri was a kid, she believed that Pampa's stories were real. And he would tell me things like, oh yeah, when I was in uh, Australia, because that's one of the places he lived for a while with his oil job, he would talk about how the flies were so thick that he couldn't open his mouth or a swarm would come inside and try to make nests there. And I'd be like, of course that's true, because you've been everywhere and you do all these things and da-da-da. So that's, that's Pampa. Kiria dreamed of globetrotting with Pampa, who often sent her packages from faraway lands and would visit periodically to tell Kiria these stories about his adventures. But when he'd leave... Kiria was left alone with her questions and not much else. Both Benjamin and Pampa are dead now, 
So these grandfathers that dipped in and out of Kyria's life are still more stories than people. And yet, they're Kyria's people. So why wouldn't anybody ever tell her who they were? They seemed to be connected to some wider world that she wasn't allowed to know about. And so she was left with these tall tales and the stories she made up for herself as she stared out the window at the cypress trees. Kyria told me she used to dream that a mystical being would appear above the trees and transform the world she wanted so badly to escape. So, the universe caught on fire, got some matches, tried to take the fire off, but couldn't. As Kyria got older, there was another wrinkle. She realized something about herself that made her feel even more disconnected from the world around her. I mean, I identify as queer, and I say I was born queer. I remember when I was a teenager, my best friend, she was sort of experimenting with, like, punky gothiness and dyeing her hair and getting tattoos and piercings. And I was talking to my mom about it, and maybe I had some angst about it. Maybe because, like, I, I wasn't allowed to dye my hair. I don't know what it was. But my mom was like, well, Sarah needs to do that to show that she's different. You don't have to do that. You just are different. So when Kyria found that tape of herself making up stories and songs as a little kid, she realized she was fed up with not knowing the answers she's wanted for as long as she can remember. I don't really know who these people are that I come from. If I could find out more, I, I might find this version of myself that, that fits in somewhere. Maybe she can finally feel like she belongs in her own story. I feel very much like I'm trying to figure out the new song. From Spoke Media and WALT, you're listening to Family Ghosts. I'm Sam Dingman, and this is episode 15, A Settling in the Bones. Our story begins after the break. Daphne, Alabama is a small town, about a half hour outside Mobile. And Kyria has a bunch of cousins there that she had never met, as well as a grandmother, Mary, the ex-wife of her grandfather, Benjamin, the one who ended up living on the streets of Berkeley. One day, Kyria decided it was time to pay a visit to this side of the family she'd never spent any time with. After a lifetime of curiosity, she wanted to see what it would feel like to jump headlong into this world she'd never gotten to know. So Kyria went to Alabama, and on the drive out into the countryside, she wasn't sure what to expect. You know, I was dressed, I wasn't trying to dress up, but I think for the area I was dressed up. <laughs> I was not trying to at all, but just, you know, I live in the city. Even though they're my people, like I don't look like any side of my family. I don't look like any of my people. So I knew that it was gonna be a thing, and then also was really worried about queerness. You know, I would just pull up to these addresses that, like, these are country roads. There's nobody coming by. So it's like, why is there a car in the yard? Who's getting out of it? And then, <laughs> and then I walked in. I was thinking when I saw you, who's that white lady coming in? It's just this, <laughs> no, no shame, no shade. Just like, I thought you were a white lady. And then they kept saying, this is, this is Benjamin's granddaughter. Can you believe it? Can you believe that? And then they get, and some of them would get on the phone. You know what I'm standing next to? Benjamin's granddaughter. 
And then I went over to cousin Lois's house. She got on the phone with people in no less than three states to say, I'm here with your cousin. Talk to her. <laughs> and I was just like, hi, how's it going in Detroit? Okay, how how's Rochester? Oh, I'm actually going to be in New York for Thanksgiving, but thank you for the invite. I really appreciate it. And that was incredible. Like, that was the opposite of outsider. That was like, oh my God, you want me to be here. I was afraid to hope for that. And then ever since then, I've been afraid to follow up on it because I'm worried it's conditional. Because I am queer and half white and... I don't want to be rejected because it felt so good to be welcomed and so I like linger with that five, ten minutes of welcome. Here's here's some uh, bad poetry musings that we're never supposed to have the light of day. Um, I was thinking about what it would be like to meet Mary. Um, that's Benjamin's ex-wife. So I wrote... Where will I misstep? Where will I falter? What are the rules? What do I say? Hello, grandmother. How are you? You look well. I'm well. Gay. Kyria had gone to Alabama to collect details about the people she came from in hopes that she might recognize something about herself she hadn't been exposed to before, to fill in the blanks. But in the end... What she ended up recognizing was her own fear about where this whole exploration might lead. You know something else I wrote? Oh, here it is. All the things that transpired touching Mary was the strangest. Made me uncomfortable because I've always kept her at arm's length. Will keep, won't I? I already knew. <laughs> Kiria wasn't ready to give up just yet. She'd only gone to Alabama in the first place because it was where Benjamin was from. And she still didn't know much about him beyond those tall tales she grew up with, the ones she'd written into her song about him. Ben Johnson, he was a towering tall man His hair to be along his chin His voice rumbled low like thunder up above or gravel churned up in a steel basin. Or gravel churned up in a steel basin. So Kiria called someone who knew Benjamin when he was a little kid. Hi, Cousin Bob, it's Kiria. Did you get my message, my text message? Yes, I just walked in and I got it. Bob is Benjamin's first cousin. They grew up together in Alabama. His uh, father and grandfather and my father, grandfather on both sides, were farmers. So we grew up in Alabama, primarily on a farm. And as such, we, uh, when you were growing up uh, in the South in the 50s on a farm, once you had to be 12, 14 years old, then you were expected to work like an adult and as long as an adult. In other words, you started to work in the fields at 6 o'clock in the morning, and you worked there until 6 o'clock in the evening. And that was very difficult. It was a difficult life. 
That's why my uncles left and went to New York and went to Michigan. They didn't want to do it, so they left. Cousin Bob told Kiria that even though the men started leaving Alabama, often the rest of the family eventually followed them. Usually the, uh, the man left, and then once he landed a job and got housing, he did send back for his family. Kiria's great-grandfather, Benjamin's father, was among that group of black men that left the South to seek his fortunes up north. Benjamin was eager to join him, and he waited and waited for his father to send word that it was time for his family to make their way north. Benjamin thought that was going to happen, and it, and it never happened. So thus, he was left down there with his mother, and, oh, it made a difference. Bob told Kiria that Benjamin was determined to make his own way out of Alabama. He was a great football player. In fact, he got to Alabama State on both an academic and a, uh, and a, and a football scholarship. But Bob also said that for Benjamin, football was about more than escaping a life on the family farm. When I asked him about his football days, he said, yeah, he enjoyed hitting people. I enjoyed playing football. I enjoyed running over people. Bob thought Benjamin was a good enough football player to consider turning pro, and remembers asking Benjamin if he'd considered it. He said, well, yeah, I thought about it, but you know, I got married, and then we had a kid before I got to finish that school, so he said that kind of put a damper on that. So that kid that Cousin Bob is talking about, that, that's my dad, Carlos. As you might have gathered from Kiria's description of her childhood in a house full of women, Kiria didn't grow up with her dad. We have a good relationship now, but we don't exactly talk about the past. I'll be like, tell me everything, and he's like, whatever, I don't remember. Let's talk about something else. Still, Kiria figured, it was worth a shot. What I see when I think of my father is just a, a man or a person trying to find his place. To me, I think being a black man in a very, you know, white America with all the walls and barriers that you dealt with would require you to seemingly be revolutionary because you're basically pursuing a free life. You want to be your own unique individual and have a place in this world. My dad just kind of typified what, what trying to be an intelligent black man is or was in, in America at that time. By now it was the 60s, and Benjamin had gotten divorced from his wife, Mary, the one Kiria met in Alabama. Benjamin and Carlos moved to Berkeley, where Benjamin was studying child psychology at UC Berkeley. He used to take Carlos with him to lectures. And Benjamin's plan to escape a life in the fields seemed to be going well. But then, as Carlos got to be a teenager, he noticed that his dad was drinking. A lot. And at that point, we started to bounce around. He was basically homeless, so he was kind of staying from one person's place to another person's place to another person's place. Eventually, Carlos and Benjamin ended up at a place called the Berkeley Hotel. Carlos described it as a seedy dump, a place where people end up when they don't have anywhere else to go. They'd been there for a few weeks, and night after night, Carlos watched his father disappear into the bottom of bottle after bottle. And then, on one of those nights... Yeah, I remember it was a sort of a sleepless night, single room, and I was sharing the bed with my dad. It must have been a queen or a king-size bed. 
And I could remember my dad sitting either at the end of the bed or somewhere in the room. And I just came out of my half-awake stupor, and I just looked at him, and I just said, Dad, why are you drinking? Why do you do this? And he just told me, I can't sleep, son. A family friend intervened, and Carlos went to live with her. He lost touch with his father, who eventually left the Berkeley Hotel and began living on the street. Carlos would see Benjamin sometimes when Carlos was out riding his bike. Benjamin would be holding court with passersby. This was the part of Benjamin's life Kyria used to hear about as a kid, his reputation as a corner philosopher. The whole town, they knew about Ben Johnson. A wise man living on a street. Women, children, men and boys came to hear him talk his talk. Traded politics for just enough to eat. Traded politics for just enough to eat. To learn more about that part of Benjamin's life, Carlos suggested Kyria should get in touch with a lawyer named Howard Moore, who told Kyria he met Benjamin on the streets in the early 70s. He was a habitué of uh, the North Berkeley a wine shop on Shattuck Avenue. You could almost find Ben in front of the wine shop any time of the day and almost late in the evening. Kyria and Howard talked about the Benjamin that inspired the stories she heard growing up the legend that loomed over the street corners of Berkeley, California. He, he was stood very erect, erect as, as a statue. I think he was 6'2", maybe 6'3". He had not an ounce of fat on him at all. He was all chiseled muscle. And he was, there was no mistaken to uh, what his racial identification was. It was black. It was jet black, midnight black. He usually wore blue jean pants and a blue jean jacket. And, and perhaps a knit cap. He had a rather deep voice. Yes. Yes, he did. But it was a soft voice. Howard says Benjamin hired him to fight some disorderly conduct charges. But when he wasn't defending Benjamin in court, they would stand on the corner and talk. Do you remember any striking conversations with him? Like any words of wisdom that he said or anything that he talked about maybe more than once? He was capable of talking about anything. <laughs> yeah. He, he liked philosophy. Yeah. Uh, he liked literature. Uh, and, of course, he liked his weed. <laughs> <laughs> he had been at Berkeley for about two years, maybe a little longer, before he got into pharmaceuticals, uh, unlicensed, of course. Uh, sometimes it could be very difficult for an African-American yeah. uh, <clears throat> who has strong opinions to be successful in an academic setting. Yes. Well, he had very strong opinions about the treatment of uh, blacks and whites in, in the U.S. Uh, he, he felt that there was a lot of discrimination and that uh, that was almost impossible to be accepted mm-hmm. as an individual, as a person who, was, who could think for himself. He really felt very strongly uh, about that aspect of life. He felt that he had the right to be an independent libertarian who loved life and could express opinions. 
Kirya had grown up with stories about Benjamin that made him seem like a mythic figure. And to hear Howard tell it, he sort of was. Sometimes he could fix his gaze upon just one person, and it would be so strong that the person would virtually become immobilized. That sounds almost mystical. He had that effect on a lot of people. He walked very softly. You didn't hear his footprint. It was almost as though he tipped up on you in a way. Someone would be coming down the street, and Ben would just be very erect and stiff and just look at them, and they would just stop. Hmm. And and then they gravitate towards him. Someone might come up to Ben and ask him, "Are you out here all the time? Hmm. Uh, uh, what do you do?" And he might say, uh, "Why do I have to do anything? I'm doing what I do now. <laughs> you don't think I'm doing nothing because I'm standing here, do you? I can't stand here without doing something." I recognize this. Like, I am this confrontation as a racially ambiguous person my whole life. What are you? What are you? And (laughs) like like I'm an animal. And then like touching me, strangers in the street and all this stuff. And so I get confrontational about it. Kiria told me that once, when she was in her 20s, living in San Francisco, she got so fed up with people's questions that she took a piece of paper and a marker and walked into a bar. And I went up to people and I said, what do you think I am? I just interrupted their conversations and I spent like an hour and a half in the bar just, and I'd be like, no, no, get specific. (laughs) And I started taking notes and writing tally marks. Kiria says at first, people were horrified. They'd stammer incoherently or claim to not see race. But when Kiria reassured them, told them she wasn't attacking them, she just generally wanted to know where they were coming from, they would start to soften. Often what would happen is they'd be like, you know, I was adopted. And they just, like, gush, and, like, all of these stories would come out as if they'd, like, been waiting to talk to somebody about it. And I'm always thinking about that stuff, and and I'm always the subject of it, whether I want to or not, just like my grandfather. And so I take it on. And, you know, when I listen back to that tape, it's, (laughs) it's, like, apparently... I've always known this was something that I'd have to take on. My mama say, I knew your father. And I said, mama, you don't know it now. So you won't know it ever. Because, mama, it's a black thing. Hey, mama, it's a black thing. But even though Kiria found this point of connection between herself and Benjamin, this tension around race, and the ways it brought them both into conflict with people's expectations, it didn't feel like an answer. All of it, the stories from Howard, the trip to Alabama, it's like this sense of belonging and not belonging at the same time. In some ways, I feel closer to my family than I ever have, and in other ways, even further away. Our story continues after the break. Spoke Media. 
there was still another elusive man from Kiria's childhood to investigate. Her mom's father, Gus, or Pampaw, the one who traveled around the world, occasionally sending back outlandish stories and outlandishly wrapped gifts. In his place he would send presents through the mail Wonders from all across the world Every package wrapped up tight Yards of tape and spools of twine Kept safe until they reached our home A little piece of him that we could hold Recently, Kiria sat down with her mom, Tanya, in hopes of finding other bits of information about Pampa to hold on to. And uh, you probably remember he always traveled with many uh, double-bag-handled uh, shopping bags. Mm. Uh, Swiss-made, you know, colorful grocery store advertising on him. But he always had, you know, like a half a dozen of those. I don't know why he didn't use suitcases. <laughs> but um, so those would always be lined up very organized uh, by the bed, you know. I remember more the packages that he would send. They would be yes. so, like, tape on tape on tape. Yes. But in an orderly way, not a crazy way. No. Orderly way. And then inside, it would be paper towels wrapped around everything. Like, yeah. very, like so much packaging. And so... Shipping and packaging was his thing. Yes. <laughs> Shipping and packaging. And for Kyria, stories. So he, <laughs> I was leaning on the bakery case, as a kid does, fogging up the glass. And he just leaned over and he said, you know, in Switzerland, they shoot children for leaning on the glass. Totally straight-faced. <laughs> and I probably jumped back. <laughs> and did not touch a glass case for, like, 15 years after that. Because <laughs> I was certain that that was true and that somewhere there was going to be a Swiss person who was just going to get out a rifle and take me out. Never known to tell a lie Just a wink in Pampa's eye His tall tales, they reached up to the sky Every wandering traveler knows the truth is like a road Might take a turn before you make it home The story finds you on the path you roam You know, the thing about Pampot, I was so young, and he told me all these fantastical stories and it seemed to have this life of adventure and fun. I didn't realize until later that there was this uh, sadness and regret, this wish that his life had gone a different way. August stopped to rest, still miles and miles away, deep in the valley of time. The ache in his bones, too weary for a climb, his heart too heavy for the sky. Only stories and no wings to take him high. So what was beneath all the packaging and all the stories? Where did that melancholy come from? Still searching for answers, Kiria turned to her grandmother, Pampa's ex-wife. He couldn't tell the truth to save him about anything because he didn't know what it was. 
It's nothing but lies and deceit. And he manipulated people that way. Yeah. He told them what they wanted to hear and they loved it. Oh, I'm going to say lots of things about it you may yeah. not have heard or don't want so, to hear. I, I'm not afraid of the complexities of who Pampai is. Okay, when I first met Pampai, he was an idealist. Had all these great ideas about how the world should be. You know, socialist ideas. And that caught my attention. I thought, this is nice. He was very sweet at that time. And we finally got over to this country, and he began to start working for corporations. And he changed. I mean, it was in, in him to begin with, but... But he's, yeah, he's an adapter. He'll adapt to a situation quite well. So he started being the conventional businessman in all ways, all the negative ways. Became less and less loving and attentive. But also, he was very young. You know, he was only 21 when he married. Oh, wow. But still, it's a tremendous burden for a young guy just starting out in life, and all of a sudden he has his family, and he has to take care of them. Yeah, so he was, he was stuck. And he was, he took it out on me. <laughs> A lot of disparaging comments, always putting me down, um, telling me how ugly I was. Really? And how he really wanted all these other women and blah, blah, blah. Oh, God. Yeah, it was hideous. And then he started having the other women. Of course, his colleagues were doing the same thing. They were all these, these businessmen with the secretaries, you know, going to parties, and I couldn't stand all those business parties. He wanted me to entertain. Yeah. Well, I did a couple of times. I gave up. I said, I can't do this. Nor can I iron your shirts. What? Any good Swiss woman <laughs> knows how to iron a shirt. <laughs> entertain? Well, not me. But that's why I had to leave him finally, because it was all this deceit. There was nothing to hold on to. What was real? He, he didn't even know himself what he thought or felt. He just... It was like he was putting on an act his whole life. When Pampa died, Tanya, Kiria's mom, went to his house with her siblings to sort through his stuff. We would find um, notebook after notebook um, where he'd written something on the first page in a big black marker and then rubber banded with six rubber bands. And the notebooks were empty. And I, I remember Kim uh, wanted to copy his computer, but... There, again, there was just files that were empty, like an organizational system with nothing in it. The stories of both of Kiria's grandfathers turned out to be sadder versions of the songs she'd been singing about them for years. Am I just going to be buried in sorrow? Is that just my plot in, lot in life? Like, am I, is it just a sorrowful existence? But not all the conversations were a dead end. Towards the end of their talk, Kiria's grandmother told a story about what happened after she and Pampa got divorced. After we split up, the kids were much happier. Everybody was happier. I thought, oh my God, what took me so long? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Well, I had to work through my whole belief system and, you know, undo all the knots. That's what life is about. You have to undo the knots. 
Yeah. Straighten it out and find your find yourself, find your freedom, find the light. After the break, Kyria tries to undo some knots. We'll be right back. Back when she was growing up in California, feeling isolated from the world beyond her living room windows, and even when she took that trip to Alabama, Kiria worried that her queerness would always keep her separate from her family's story. But she's always been more comfortable being her true self around her grandmother. And towards the end of their conversation about Pampa, Kiria started to open up even more. So I wanted to, um, to share, to add on to your thoughts about independence because I am trying an experiment actually in in this relationship that I'm in in a way because I was raised with this you know my mom has been mostly single and you know also has embraced independent women and I was raised to feel independent as a woman and to never think I had to rely certainly not on a man and, you know, marriage, that was, that's never been a value in our family. You know, like, this... Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, the institution of marriage. Yeah. All of that stuff. Like, I married Pampa to get into this country. Right, exactly. Yeah. It wasn't like, oh, you dress the ring, you know. Yeah, yeah. A lot of families have that. So, I sort of have this weird obsession with that culture as a foreigner to it. Uh-huh. Like, I watch those wedding shows, and I'm like, ah, you know, just, like, learning about those kind of people. Yeah, yeah. And my partner, Steph, comes from that kind of family. Her parents have been together for, I don't even know how many years. They got married in their early 20s, they didn't have kids until their 30s. And Steph is 30 now, so 40 years. I never, you know, I never planned necessarily to have a partner. But Steph offers me a certain kind of stability. Yeah. Like when I met Steph, we stayed up till six in the morning talking about the Harlem Renaissance. (laughs) (laughs) And I I just was, it was, it occurred to me for the first time, like a light went on like, oh, this is, this could be a sustainable love. You know, not one that's like throw caution to the wind, but like, oh, this this could have a good run. (laughs) When we're little kids, We believe our stories matter so much. And then we get older, and this thing happens where we want our stories to be different than they are. We convince ourselves that they're not good enough, or they're wrong somehow, instead of just letting our stories be our stories. Today's my wedding day. I'm going to buy a wedding dress. And I got it, and I wore it, and I went to my wedding. And maybe that's the message that was hiding on that tape of herself that Kyria found. That this younger version of Kyria didn't have any knots to untie. She already knew where to find her light. You you are the one I love best. I want you to be my girlfriend. It's like I feel so grounded with stuff. Yeah. When I'm off on the clouds, I like, oh, stuff. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I, I describe it as a settling in the bones. 
When Kyria began this story, she envisioned a journey that would reveal everything. Because we all want our lives to be an amazing story. We believe we live in a mythology because we imagine a mythology is more interesting, filled with mythic figures whose quests have laid the groundwork for our own. Stories are not just inevitable, they are shaping, right? They shape us. And because there's this this almost mystical dynamic between the intentional and the unintentional, it sometimes feels like the stories are telling us. And so we try to collect details. We look back at the stories of our ancestors, and we fear that we're doomed to legacies we didn't choose. For Kyria, she has one grandfather who seems to have known exactly who he was, but who felt like the world wouldn't allow him to be that person and lost himself to the demons of alcohol and life on the street. Her other grandfather could never quite figure out who he was supposed to be, and he spent much of his life packaging himself in an empty corporate mythology. But Kyria's not doomed to repeat the downfalls of her grandfathers. She's been telling her own story, in her own words, all along. And as she recently told me in the studio, she's already figured out how the next part goes. I think I have the new song. So Kyria got together with some fellow musicians and made a new tape. When you ready to count them? Five, six, five, six, seven. My mama said, come home, come home. I said, I need a car. My mama said, come home, come home. I said, I need a car. I won't come home alone. I won't. My feet won't get me far. I won't come home alone. I won't. My feet won't get me far. My grandma said, come home, come home, I said, I need your voice. My grandma said, come home, come home, I said, I need your voice. I walk them home alone, I won't until you sing your songs. I walk them home alone, I won't until you sing your songs. My grandpa said, come home, come home, I said, I miss you so. My grandpa said, come home, come home, I said, I miss you so. I walk them home alone, I won't since you have gone away. I walk them home alone, I won't since you have gone away. The gunman said, come home, come home, I said, what for and why? The gunman said, come home, come home, I said, what for and why? I won't come home, I won't, I won't, you got nothing on me. I won't come home, I won't, I won't, you got nothing on me. My lover said, come home, come home, she said, come as you are. My lover said, come home, come home, she said, come as you are. Come home as you are, she said, come home as you are. I called your mama and your papa, they just want you as you are. All your family's waiting for you, they just want you as you are. I'll be right here waiting for you, come home as you are. I'll be here with arms wide open, come home as you are. Come home as you are, my lover, come home as you are. Come home as you are, my lover, come home as you are. Family Ghosts is hosted and produced by me, Sam Dingman, with Odelia Rubin, Jennifer Lai, Lindsay Cradwell, Jacob Smith, Jenna Hannum, and Janiel Kastner. This episode was mixed by Evan Arnett and featured original music by Evan Viola and, of course, by Kyria Traber, with performances by Karina Pela on vocals, Ashley Phillips on guitar and vocals, 
Emma Alabaster on bass and vocals, and Ariana Kala Brame on drums. Our theme music is by Luis Guerra. Executive producers for season two are myself, along with Keith Reynolds and Aaliyah Tavakolian at Spoke Media. Find more great podcasts at spokemedia.io. For bonus material from this story, including an alternate take of Come Home, please visit our website, familyghostspodcast.com, where you can also sign up for our email list, The Ghost Post. And if you want to be a part of the future of Family Ghosts, please consider joining the Kindred Spirits on Patreon at patreon.com slash familyghosts. If you'd like to follow our show on Twitter and Instagram, you can find us at famgoshow. That's F-A-M-G-H-O, show. Stay tuned after the credits for a sneak preview of next week's very special season two finale. And thank you for listening to Family Ghosts, where every house is haunted. Next time on Family Ghosts, Martha Redbone comes from a family that's a blend of Cherokee, Black, and European ancestry. And all her life, people have been trying to tell Martha who she is and where she comes from. Martha Redbone, you look Black to me. You just light-skinned it. Red Indians are still alive. You must be joking. Light-skinned Blacks are always trying to claim they're Indian. So one day, Martha, who's a singer and songwriter, decided it was time to set the record straight, to tell her family's story in her own words. I can tell you the name. She can tell you the name. I can tell you the place. She can tell you the place. Even the date. She can tell you the date. I could write a book. And that's exactly what she did. Tune in for an episode unlike anything you've ever heard on Family Ghosts. That's next week on our season two finale. You're listening to WALT. Homemade Radio.